0: Welcome to Return on Character Podcast, the podcast that tells character-shaping stories with famous and should-be-famous leaders. I'm Dan Cooper, founder of Rock Investments, and co-hosting with me today is Jess Larson, founder of Greystoke Investments.
1: Uh, Today is another of our mini-series with Rock Investments CEO Dan Cooper. Dan, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Uh, Really excited to have Rachel Garrell on the show. Uh, Rachel, can you tell us what Nexus is?
2: It's a wonderful question, Jess, and thank you for having me, and thank you, Dan. Um, The truth is there is no what is Nexus. There's only who is Nexus. So Nexus is an international community of leading next-gen philanthropists and impact investors and also young social innovators around the world. And we have representation from 70 countries and chapters in almost just as many. And the idea is really to bring next-gen philanthropists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs together to leverage all of their skills, talents, access, influence, and resources to make a difference in the world and hurry history.
1: It's incredible. And I've been hearing about you from our mutual fan for a long time, Lindsay Hadley. Um, and uh, can you give us just a few more sets? Like, I, I was so impressed about how many members you have and, and just kind of like the wealth they represent and, and again, how many countries it was.
2: Sure. So the Nexus Global community is six thousand members from 70 countries and there's a combined family net worth of 750 billion dollars but they don't have access to that capital today that's if everyone's parents or grandparents suddenly you know we're not on the planet we don't want that to happen um but that is the wealth transfer that will take place from older generations to our members over the course of the next couple decades
1: how exciting well i know dan has some questions for i'm going to turn over in just a minute but uh I'm going to give my own endorsements. I was texting some people about you this morning, uh, specifically uh, our mutual friend, Lindsay Hadley, and here's what she says. So, Anybody who's listening that didn't see the episodes with Lindsay, uh, she's one of my favorite people in the world. We've been working together starting 20 years ago. She was the first executive director of my charity. Her clients are celebrities and billionaires. She helps with their charities, and uh, she's one of the most generous people ever. But uh, She's getting ready for her TED talk today, so it'll be fun to watch that when it comes out. But uh, Lindsay said about you, Rachel, you'll love her. She's so smart and always makes you feel like you're the, most imp- you're the most important person in the room. She's deeply loyal also, and she leads with an energy that's infectious. And coming from Lindsay, I feel like that's really high praise, um, and, and I believe it because Listeners of the show will, will recognize the name Asma Pai We've been working on the fundraiser for scholarship. And I was so happy that you posted about it online. And, and that's so nice of you. And, uh, and you know we've been working to try and get asthma speaking opportunities at universities and some Fortune 500 companies and stuff. She was over the moon excited when she says, this group Nexus invited me to come to New York and talk. And, So that's why Rachel, uh, asthma this morning was texting me to say how amazing you are. So thank you so much for the work you've done to help asthma.
2: Oh my goodness, there are no two more uh, inspiring people than Lindsay and asthma. And the fact that you have them in your orbits and you're championing them makes me so happy. Uh, I believe that we each need to use every, every, every opportunity possible to help heal this world and to be champions of one another and i love how you're using media in this podcast in this way so thank you
1: well anybody who's watching us on youtube right now on the screen you're gonna see rachel's uh post for, for asthma scholarship she this at this time last year she was helping 150 of her friends escape from the taliban and uh and it was just this week that she got dropped off at virginia tech university and is starting on her degree towards computer science and artificial intelligence. She wants to build a fintech company and go back to Afghanistan and, and uh, help the women in her country not be so controlled financially. So we're big fans. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Dan, though. Dan, what's your
0: first question for Rachel? To me, I'm always interested, Rachel, in understanding how a person got to where they've got they've gotten or where they've landed in life. And if I'm honest, and I mean this in the highest compliment, because it's my favorite movie in the world. I look at your resume and the things you've done, and I think, man, this woman's like almost like Forrest Gump of sorts, like you know, doing all these crazy things, being in the intersection of a lot of uh, incredible and important moments in, in in the world. And but more importantly, like to me, the, the bigger thing that's interesting is what's made you. What's made you into this person that you are today? Like, how did you develop the kind of the drive and the passion and the interest in in kind of nurturing a nexus-like organization? But then, um, but then also, how did you get there? You know, like, I mean, I don't think anybody could tactically try to figure out, okay, this is how I want this is what I want to do with my life. I want to create a, a, an organization that you know, uh, takes care of all these, uh, next geners, and I want to have influence all over the world. It's just, it's, it, it, there's gotta be an evolution to your story. And I'd love to hear it if you're willing to share it with us.
2: <laughs> it's such a beautiful question. Thank you. Um, man, where do you start? Um, I guess where'd there you was... grow up? Oh, okay. Um, I was born in Brooklyn and lived there till I was 10. My, my parents were school teachers um, and principals, and, um, and then we moved to Princeton, New Jersey, and I lived there uh, for a bunch of years. And um, I guess the interesting thing about my family is that I come from seven generations of United Church of Christ ministers and missionaries. So um, I come from a long tradition of people with a lot of faith who went to cultures all over the world and had conversations. Um, and engaged in dialogue about faith and values and mission and purpose, I think, for many generations before I was here. And then my mother, who's the daughter of two ministers, uh, married uh, a man who was raised Jewish. So I grew up in an interfaith family, always um, feeling like I was there to be a bridge builder between mm. communities of faith and communities of rural and urban, moving from Brooklyn to you know Princeton and I um, always saw myself as uh, someone who could walk between worlds and help translate people's experience to each other to build friendships. Um, and, and I think friendships are the core of everything. Um, people ask me all the time about Nexus as a network, and I think of Nexus as a family, not a network. Um, yes. Sometimes you don't agree with everything and everyone in your family, but you care about them enough to listen and learn and to sometimes help them understand your perspective or to help yourself understand theirs. Um, so I think that's the, the basics of the growing up um, and then I would never actually left the east coast of the U.S. when I was in college at the University of Pennsylvania and I was studying international relations so I didn't have a lot of street cred um, and then I heard about a free winter break trip called Birthright 2000 and if you had one Jewish grandparent you could sign up and I had two Jewish grandparents um, though I was raised Christian And so I signed up for this free trip. and got my first passport and went on a free trip to Israel. And Mm. um, I literally went because it was free. I would have loved to go anywhere else but Israel. And I'm on this free trip. And uh, suddenly I met the donors, the philanthropists behind the trip on the first night. And I realized it wasn't free. It was actually a gift. And that these Mm. amazing donors had saved money for a decade to send this one trip of kids who had some Jewish connection somewhere in them to Israel to find a of themselves they may never have gone looking for. And so I decided to live each of those 10 days as a gift instead of thinking about it as a free trip. And it shifted my mindset so dramatically. I woke up early, I asked more than my fearship questions. I knew nothing about Israel, nothing about the Jewish people, nothing about a Jewish identity. I was saying in the church choir my whole life. And in humbling myself to learn and ask so many questions and not be afraid to look foolish, I, I soaked up a culture and a people and a tradition and a religion and a heritage. And I learned the power of philanthropy because I never would have, I think, gone to Israel myself or explored my Jewish you know heritage if it wasn't for this trip. And I learned that I didn't know if I wanted to be Jewish or Christian, but I knew I wanted to be a philanthropist, which was amazing to be 20 years old and have no money. And know that in your life, what you want to do is give other people extraordinary life-changing experiences that are so much more than what money could buy. So I knew I wanted to be a philanthropist in that moment. And after I graduated Penn, I went to work for this amazing woman, Nancy Rubin, who was a former ambassador to the UN for human rights. And she's a great philanthropist in her own right. And I just, I say, I studied at the University of Nancy Rubin because I didn't get a master's or a PhD or an MBA. I stood by her side for eight years and learned everything I possibly could from a great feminist, humanitarian, global citizen. And that was an education that you could never have bought
0: wow so that that was kind of um your version of joe ritchie uh, of my, in my exactly. life exactly uh, just going to the university of a, of a mentor um you're getting early expense experiences to the united nations it's big it, I, I you know i've been in those arenas a little bit and it's it's kind of awe-inspiring early on and then maybe frustrating uh after a while when you're trying to make a make a change how did you make a transition from there to what was your next move? And what was your next orientation? I mean, it's a big deal. I know what it's like. It's a big deal to move from your, from your mentor to, to the next phase in life. What, what, how did you find yourself in that next phase?
2: So every year is the international year of something. This year, 2022, is the international year of glass. 2011 was the international year of youth. And when it's the International Year of Something, which it always is, um, the UN likes to say at the end of the year, look at these 300, 500, whatever it might be, programs that we were able to host and put together for the International Year of fill in the blank. So a childhood friend and I uh, wrote the UN a proposal saying we'd love to host a program for the International Year of Youth. Uh, We'd love to bring together next gen from the most influential families in the world to inspire them to really combine forces learn from each other and figure out how they can hurry history and make a difference on every single social issue around and the un wrote back and said sounds great here's a date and it was in six weeks (laughs) uh, and and to make things even more complicated it was a week before my wedding in costa rica so um i had to plan both of those at once but you don't say no when the un gives you a room because they're not just giving you a room, they're giving you their stamp of approval and yeah. their credibility. So we could then call up and email everyone we knew who might be a good fit to represent their family and their family interests, or who are amazing social innovators um, with really proven models that are ready to scale. And so we reached out to everyone we knew and we said, can you join us in six weeks at the UN for the first ever, you know, Next Gen Philanthropy and Social Innovation Summit. And uh, about 75 people signed up, which was Remarkable because it was over the holidays and we thought no one was really yeah, good. So how
0: did you make the connections? Like how did you get in the doors of these these families? Uh, did you pick up the phone and call them? Like what did you do?
2: So my co How did people
0: how did people make help people make these cold calls to to shifting into like a totally new organization that doesn't exist? I know how hard it is to create something that doesn't exist to get people to to jump on board. How, how did I mean how did you do it Rachel?
2: That's a great question. Um, I give most of the credit to my co-founder, Jonah Wickcamper. He cold called the Forbes 500 list and said, we are hosting an event with the UN. We are inviting the Forbes 500 list and we are inviting each family to send one next-gen member to represent your family. So think carefully about who you'll send. So it wasn't framed as, do you want to join? You know, who we are? It was like, this is happening at the UN. You can only invite one person. Who's it going to be? and i think that 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 really shifted into credentializing us and then making it feel like a a scarce resource and scarcity can breed uh (laughs) eagerness um so i give him all the credit there um and then we had the first event and people got in a line at the end and we thought they were coming to thank us for bringing them together from around the world and not so much They said, this was wonderful, but there aren't enough people from Asia or there aren't enough people from Africa. There aren't enough people from the Middle East. And so we said, well, um, this was the event. Ta-da, we're done. And they're like, no, you're not, you just lit a spark. And so we birthed a movement without meaning to, and we're so humbled to have done so. And so I said to everyone who was there, you're everyone who responded to us. This is the power of the community we can build. But now we want you to be the architects of your own community. Uh, So if you could give us each three to five names of people that you think must be in this room, I will do the hard work of requesting a second room for the future in this year for the International Year of Youth. And lo and behold, that was February um, when we were meant to just host one event and that was all. We didn't mean to start a nonprofit or a movement or... um, And suddenly, uh, I, I rented a room for July for 350 people and the people who came to the first summit each invited three to five people and we had a glorious, really meaningful event um, in July and the Secretary General Ban Ki Moon came uh, he was not invited but it was in his house so he came um, and he spoke and he said words that really just hit my heart and I've always stayed there. And he said in every other room in this building, people are having meetings about future meetings we're gonna have, about other meetings that we're going to have to create task forces and create committees to create change. And in this room, people are sharing their experience and the change they're making in the world and others are raising their hand to collaborate in real time immediately. And that is the hallmark of your generation. And we're so excited uh, that, that he said that, and that that was a call to action for everyone to act now and not wait. When you don't have to be limited by the bureaucracy of organizations and governments and NGOs, and you can just dive in and collaborate. That's what our generation's all about.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you tapped into a highly charged battery uh, of people that, um, that I mean, you must you must have Been a catalyst for so many things. In fact, I went on your website, of course, and looked at everything. And one of the things that was kind of amazing to me—the thing that struck me the most—was all the photos of people giving each other hugs. (laughs) I mean, it was like uh, this isn't a normal organization. This is something more. This is something deeper, and this is something meaningful, which is something that oftentimes causes people to carry it through their whole life and. That's pretty special that you've done that. What, one of the questions I, you know, we, we're we trying to shift the focus of how capital is allocated, um, not just on the basis of getting a return, but also on the basis of allocating towards people that behave well, uh, which by the way correlates with high returns and has been proven to, to be highly correlative and it's the basis of our entire uh, strategy. But we find, there are four characteristics we look for. We look for integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion in the marketplace. You're in the. You've been in the throes of kind of the next generation's rise. Um, is this is this something that's on their heart? If is behavior matter? Um, what else is on their heart right now as far as it as as an orientation for impact investing in the world and. Um, I'd just be curious, you know, if you, if you have any stories that you're able to share, you know, of examples, you know, of people caring about how impact investing is, is conducted in the world, um, I'd love to hear them and, and get your take and just uh, kind of bring us up to speed on, on the heart of the, of the community that you're, you're working with.
2: Sure. Well, first of all, I love those four character traits. Um, I think integrity, responsibility, compassion, and forgiveness are huge and really centered to the next generation of how they think about everything they do. Um, so even brands that our members aligned with, in terms of where they're gonna, what airline they're gonna fly, what hotel they're gonna stay in, what clothing they're gonna buy, what restaurants and food they're gonna eat, they look for brand integrity as well um and they look for compassion and empathy in in the brands that they work with and are you know if there's a brand um that doesn't have a social impact focus or alignment uh there that's probably one that's going to get passed over by this next generation as they look to align their values with all the ways they spend their capital um with sustainable food sustainable fashion sustainable travel so when you think about impact investing it's it can be the fullest expression of someone's values and how they want to align their money with their goals for the world. Um, And from a generation who sees that and how they want to, you know, if they want to eat locally sourced grass fed meat or not, you just have to realize how ripe the market is for impact investing for next gen because they're already using that lens in every purchase they make. Um, So I think it's it's really a big one that you're working on. And I think that it's something that's going to stand really, really true for this next generation. At Nexus, we say that we believe speed happens at the, oh, excuse me, change happens at the speed of trust. And I think that Thanks. trust would probably be the fifth character um, trait that I would put alongside your four, because we have members who come to Nexus without knowing what their passion is. But at our summits, there's no affiliation on your name tag, it doesn't say, um, you know, Dan Cooper, Rocky TF. It doesn't say Rachel Gerald Nexus. It just says Dan, really big, on your name tag and your last name, quite small, because we have quite impressive last names but we don't want people befriending each other because of their last name. So what we ask people to do is to walk up and say, what's your passion and how can I help? And that question frightens some people because they say, I don't know what my passion is. That's part of what I came here to figure out. And so we say, that's okay. The most important part of the question, what's your passion and how can I help, is the second part because we all have ways we can help. So if you don't know what your passion is yet, that's great. But don't ever let a moment go by where you don't offer ways that you could help someone else. Because if you rack your brain, there's always a way. And if the last thing you could say is, if you happen to come to LA, you could sleep on my couch, like there's always a way you can help. And I think that when you look at impact investing, that's the similar philosophy. No matter what sector you're investing in, there's always a way you can be making social impact. And for any you know, fund or for any company to think that, that that's a secondary priority, uh, it's just not, they're not asking themselves the question deeply enough. That's, that's what I would say to push back.
0: I think, it, well, I've got one more question, Jess, and then I'm going to turn it over to you because you probably got a list. But why do you think they care about this? Like, why do you think this generation cares about all these factors that maybe even their own family members didn't school them in. Right. Or how did this movement in their hearts develop? uh, You know, to the point where that's, it's, it's a strange conundrum because in, in, in a lot of ways, the kids are now stepping up and taking a higher moral responsibility than even maybe the parents of the previous generation. How did that happen? Rachel, like, Where did this come from?
2: So I think there's probably two things for this generation that really helped us to feel that we could be custodians of the future that we want for the world and for humanity. Um, Number one would be that our parents and grandparents grew up very much in a local world, knowing their community that they grew up in, their neighbors, and when they give and when they invest, it's to community-based projects that, that they'll see the benefits of on a daily basis. And this generation, you know, we've grown up in a borderless world, much much because of, um, you know, not just getting the local news, but CNN, and seeing what's happening around the world and feeling a kinship to maybe that person, that, that woman whose story was just told on the news in Afghanistan, I might feel closer to her than I do to my neighbors who I've never met. So it's a real shift in global perspective from that's local to global. And I think mm-hmm. that's true with, with social media and with the internet. Suddenly you can Google and find an amazing, um, you know, school for for people who were formerly incarcerated in Africa and and feel like that captured your heart uh, because you can get distracted on the internet, googling anything and um, your world has become so borderless and so big that you have more opportunities for compassion and empathy and to find an alignment of what you care about and that that does exist somewhere. But in the past, if it didn't exist in the small town you grew up in or the neighborhood in a big city, you might not even know that there was an opportunity for you to, to care, or plug in, or amplify something. I'm sorry. That's,
0: that's really helpful. That I, I mean, that's it, the, the orientation towards the immediate circle, and then just this generation having a huger orientation and uh, and almost empowerment to engage with it. In the that that explains a lot, Jess. Please.
2: Oh, I was going to say one more thing. Oh, you please continue. Um, I also think that um, growing up in school, in from young ages, um, this generation has been taught that their words matter and they can sure. influence their parents. So if you look at the stop smoking campaigns, there were commercials forever that had pictures of you know black lungs and all sorts of things, and um, and grown ups as I would call them. Um, weren't stopping smoking. Um, but once they took it into schools and showed, you know, kindergartners, first graders, second graders, these photos of these terribly damaged lungs and saying, if your parents are smoking, you know, go home, tell them it's not dangerous. It's, wow. it's dangerous, it's not safe. You want your parents to be around as long as they can be and live long lives. And these kids went home and they told their parents, stop smoking, it's dangerous. Don't you know, I want to love you forever, as many years as you can be on earth. And they would take their prepared cigarettes and put them in the toilet and, and it really had an effect so much more than I think any other stop smoking campaign, which really haven't worked by and large. But um, those did work, and this is the generation who started celebrating Earth Day in their classrooms from first and second grade. When our parents were still using you know, styrofoam and weren't thinking about it, the kids would go home and say, we're gonna recycle, it's Earth Day. And really saw their, their voice and their words having influence from a very young age, even in these small um, ways, but it, they were able to influence behavior change in their families and values changes in their families that started with them. So if you know that you can do that as a first or second grader, it stays with you and you believe you can change anything in the world that's not right. And usually starting with your family and their opinions.
0: Wow, you just kind of unpacked the whole social movement of today. Thank you very much, Rachel. <laughs> it's explained, incredible. Jesse, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Uh,
1: well, I think it's incredibly insightful and um, I'm, I'm really interested, you know, you get interviewed a lot and and you get to spend a lot of time with very influential people what's another insight you've had that maybe um that maybe isn't as average you know because you've spent so much time with these you know th- this next generation of of such influential families and there's a lot of us that maybe know somebody from some of those families or you know a few of those people like you know everyone But I don't know everyone. I don't have the hugest LinkedIn list, and I I looked. You know, we know like seventy-five people in common. Okay, so I was really excited to meet you today, and like, the list of people, like who we know in common, uh, like it actually says a lot about you that those are the people you have in common with me. (laughs) Like, makes me have a lot of respect for you that that's your people. Um, So I'm interested. What kind of insights you think maybe you've been able to experience that you wouldn't have otherwise, or that are not as average? just because you've got to spend so much time uh, with that population.
2: Well, that's such a compliment that we have these wonderful people in common. Um, I think what's really interesting is that, um, you know, the other side of this coin is people say, oh my goodness, you, you have a community of great privilege and great access and great influence. And, and it's true. Um, you know, we host our summits usually with a head of state in a different continent every other month almost. Um, we're traveling the world and uniting the next generation of really influential families. And what I would say is that um, it's not a perfect world to have billions of dollars. Um, I think that there's a lot of criticism right now of, of the elite, um, and they're feeling that. And I think that what's important about the way that Nexus approaches things is that we've seen that um, people are people and they wanna connect on a soul level. They wanna connect around a passion area. And, and I think particularly with, with next gen from, from influential families, they wanna be seen for themselves and not for the last name that they carry and they want to know that the person who's befriending them is befriending them purely for friendship and not with an agenda that's clandestine but will come out in three months time actually i wanted you to invest in my company or support my nonprofit. so we have a really strong non-solicitation policy at nexus and if anyone ever feels solicited for any reason they report that to red flag at nexus and then they're removed from the community so you really are there to build long-lasting and genuine friendships and i think that People would imagine that that next gen from billionaire families would have all the friends that they could, you know, possibly want. But I think deep and meaningful friendships with no agenda are actually the most precious resource on the planet. Um, when we look at the mental health crisis over the last few years, people with you know strong friendship ties are living longer, are having happier, healthier lives. And so I think that all the money in the world can't buy friends and happiness and health. That's that's the insight I would share. Which May be disappointing for those who are listening who want to accumulate tons of wealth in order to be happy and healthy and have great friends, um, but I think that that's that's the resource that matters most in the world, and um, it means that when there's a conflict, um, you know, physical conflict, a war somewhere um, in a place that you don't care about, if someone who's your friend through nexus or through another community calls to you and says, "I need your help. I care about this country and they're in peril," you might not even be able to put your finger on the map and know where that country is, but you say, I'm in, what do you need? And this idea of everyone wanting to help, but just being waited to be asked, that's how I see the world. The world is full of people who wanna help and are waiting to be asked, uh, to think creatively of how they could help. I think that when you see the world that way, you start to realize that we can really all make a difference. Um, And I think even the most influential of families all over the world and heads of state are waiting to be asked to help. There is this uh, politeness that we're all abiding by where we think we should know someone a certain amount of time before we tell them what we're passionate about and ask how they could help, or we should wait our turn as the next generation to, to talk about what it is that we care about with the head of state or a CEO of a major company. But, uh, but our members all, I think, subscribed in philosophy that, that we all want to share our passions and figure out how we can help and ask CEOs and heads of state and each other now because there's no time like the present.
1: I love that answer so much. I'm going to have to re-watch this video and take notes. Uh, I feel like there's so many things in there. I think maybe my, my follow-up question that is, when you think about these individuals, um, like I think about some of the kids of billionaire families that we know in common who have actually been on the show already. And I think about um, how many times in life they've probably been seen less as a person, uh, you know, less as a real-life human being, and more like a walking ATM machine. That someone's trying to figure out the code how to get the money out of right and so my question for you is when you think about inviting people who have a history of being objectified could be a celebrity, could be wealthy could be you know someone who people really want something from a lot instead of wanting to really connect with when you think about inviting people who have that as a previous experience into a community where you're genuinely trying to have it be a human to human thing um, what advice do you have on on helping overcome the skepticism that they may have when you're trying to invite them to something like that?
2: It's a great question. I think we lean in on curation of the community. So whereas in that first year in 2011, you know, we, we called, called the Forbes 500 list and then those people and in each invited three to five people. Now we have a really lengthy application process. It takes about 45 minutes to fill out with essay questions and references. And it's really meant to be a deterrent so that if you're just interested in taking that selfie at the UN or the White House, you'll stop filling it out at some point. Um, and, but, um, but I think the thing we can promise to, to applicants who then become Nexus members is that the community is really well curated and we do have that strong solicitation policy and we're not afraid to remove people from the community for being bad actors. Behavior matters, character matters. Um, Dan, your heart's probably singing, um, but character matters more than your resume because if you're gonna know someone truly and deeply, uh, we don't really care what you've accomplished to date. Uh, that's why there's no affiliations on our name tags. I don't really care where anyone works. They're gonna work 20 different places, but their character is gonna stay true. So that's what matters most. And um, I think leaning in on that is how we fight that skepticism, really kind of front and center. And we have a new to Nexus program at every summit you know, for anyone who's new, and that is led by members who share their personal experiences coming into Nexus Skeptical and, um, and how they were able to break those uh, fears that they might have and make true friends. And sometimes if people have gotten married in Nexus, sometimes they've become travel buddies, co-investors, joined each other's boards, whatever it might be. And we start with an icebreaker in Neuta Nexus, which is, if you really knew me, you would know and so the first thing that happens you show up at this conference at the united nations or whatever it might be and you're in your fancy attire and you're ready to be your fancy perfect self and then you go into this room and you hear people share their journeys of how they cracked open when they came to nexus and and really shared their heart and, and made deep friendships and you go what what's happening i thought i was at a fancy conference and then you sit in pairs and you have to you know have the opportunity of saying if you really knew me you would know and people say if you really knew me you would know i'm terrified right now if you really knew me you would know i have imposter syndrome if you really knew me you would know i i lost a family member last week and i can't get it out of my mind or and suddenly you're you're having a genuine conversation because to succeed in that first task we give you is to be vulnerable so when you start with vulnerability i think that you can only build beauty on top of vulnerability
1: that's incredible. Um, I, I have so many well, more. So what
2: do you, hey, uh, hey, Jess, what do you
0: do with your life again? You know, <laughs> I mean, good grief. I mean, what, basically you're creating a friendship factory. Yeah. You know, a lifelong friendship factory that accelerates people's ability to connect, and then you let them loose to work together. Well, um,
1: maybe yeah, my last question amazing. before I hand it back to Dan here would be this. If you had to start it over again, uh, you know, you, you started a group oh, similar to this over again, but you didn't have the UN. You didn't have your reputation, but you did get to bring everything you knew. Wh- wh- where would you start? What would you do?
2: Um, for us, I think the members are the magic, and so I really believe that I'm. I might be co-founder and CEO, but I'm really a very glorified admin um, because I don't set a five-year plan for where next is gonna grow, how next is gonna go. Instead, instead I actually just trust the members to be the architects of the community they want. And that's led us in all these wild countries I had no connections in. And into real issue areas to do real work on topics that I had no familiarity with. So I think what I would do or what I would give as advice to myself or others starting a community is to trust the members to develop the shape of where you should go and to not hold tightly to a plan or a vision or a topic or a country. Let everything go in terms of over-architecting something and really trust the community to create the community that they need for themselves.
1: That's such a great answer. Uh, Dan, I've got a hundred more questions, but I'm going to let you go instead.
0: I mean, I mean one of the questions I have is it's like, how do you... Um, how do you how do you screen or how do you deal with scenarios where you have members that are don't have character, as I'd like to say, or are struggling? Uh, you know, I believe people can all develop in the right direction and and you know live a life of integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. It's not black and white, um, and so you don't want to throw people out because they haven't found their center and figured out figured that out what uh how do you how do you manage that from a cultural standpoint within nexus to uh it's almost like the 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 no jerk policy uh (laughs) but also layered with a little bit of grace how how do you do that
2: so i think what's really been beautiful is watching the community self-govern so Hmm. you show up at your first day of a summit at some you know parliament or, or government building that's very fancy and the first day everyone's Um, putting on their best makeup and their best handbag and um, their shiniest shoes and they think that that's what cool is because that's what cool is in the world for people is to show up as their best self and how that translates into you know your physical appearance right and then people might talk about the fancy nonprofit they're on the board of or the fancy school they went to and that happens just naturally on the first you know evening when you're meeting each other those are what we've taught we've been taught are our credentials and what matter most about us and in Nexus, it's not what matters most. So basically our OG members, our members who've been around for 11 years, just will divert a conversation instantly because they're not here to, they're not at Nexus to find out where you went to school and what yacht club you're a part of. So they'll just change the conversation because they don't want to have that conversation. They can have that conversation at brunch at the Plaza any day. So they'll just start saying, but what do you care about? What moves you? What drives you? What's your social impact passion? Are you an impact investor? Do you want to learn more about that? and people will just get flustered because they don't, they're used to relying on all of the things that we surround ourselves with on our resumes to credentialize ourselves. And our members are not interested. They're supremely disinterested in your resume or how many followers you have or anything like that. So they'll just, because they don't have appetite or interest, will just shift the conversation really easily and, um, and say, how can I help you? What are you looking for? Why did you come here to this summit? And by day two and day three, people are hugging in the hallways. They're sitting outside and making their own little breakout sessions, you know, on couches. And um, and they're wearing, you know, more like flip flops and jeans. And by day three, their arms are around each other, sitting on a boat or sitting at you know, a concert. And just, we just take them back to summer camp and strip away all the things that we've accomplished and that, you know, we earned. And instead go to your purest self. And it just happens so that On day one, cool is still what the exterior world has taught us is your signs of cool. And by day three, it's how vulnerable you, how collaborative are you, how welcoming are you, how how much do you share? If those are the things that are rebranded as cool, then people want to be cool. So we've rebranded cool to be high in integrity and good character. So even people who would normally be pitching or be promoting and self-promoting, that's not rewarded at all. In fact, it, you know, you'll sit at a table by yourself if you're pitching people, um, I work in real estate and I'd love to tell you about you know, my portfolio. People are like, that's great, I'm just going to get a drink and they'll switch. So um, we rebranded cool to be a good character and then people fall in line because everyone wants to live up to the highest potential of what a community sees as an overachiever.
1: Let's talk about one of the measurable things. You talked about natural disasters. Um, I heard you uh, on a video talking about like after there was uh, a big situation in the Bahamas I believe and there was like a very quick response. Can you tell people that about that?
2: Yes. So Hurricane Dorian hit the Bahamas early September 2019. I was on vacation in Mexico. Why I love telling that part of the story is because um, people often think that Uh, communities make a difference based on who at the top made a decision and then said we should care about this and then it trickled down to everyone else. I was on vacation. I was not involved. Our members saw that one of our members who lived in Grand Bahama Island um, had his island covered in 20 feet of standing water and that means that everything with an engine would never work again. Every boat, every plane, every car, every truck and he was seeing people on their rooftops Uh, because houses are only about 20 feet there, and knew this was a real crisis, and knew that Grand Bahama Island is a tiny island with a lot of Haitian refugees, and it's not the island where all the tourism happens, and they're probably gonna be a bit of an afterthought to their governments, Um, so relief efforts. So he put photographs onto the Nexus community chats and said, I need help, help of any kind, rack your brain, think of what you could do, people are not safe, they don't have food, they don't have water, they don't have medical care, they don't have electricity, and they're trapped on their rooftops. Who can help? And immediately, our members who were part of helicopter clubs and who had helicopters um, started running Black Hawk helicopters over to the Grand Bahama, plucking people off rooftops and bringing them to higher ground. Uh, That was the first day. The second day, our members who had net jets hours or small private planes started sending citations, um, small private planes of aid workers over. We sent World Central Kitchen, Israel Aid, UNICEF, Team Rubicon. Our members mm-hmm. financed all of these aid workers getting to this forgotten island in this one little makeshift airstrip that was really someone's driveway. So it was a very small huh. plane. And they would start making runs back and forth in these small planes from from Florida. And then on day three, they were able to open one boat slip. Uh, And our members who owned yachts called up their yacht clubs and said, who's going to donate their yachts to bring supplies over? We need generators. We need food. We need medical supplies. And a member whose family... owned a cruise ship, um, was supposed to take a cruise to the Bahamas, but clearly couldn't go. And they said, if you want everything off this ship and you can take it, bring it over. And so we sent an armada of 55 yachts that stood in a line (laughs) to go in and out of that one boat slip, bringing humanitarian relief and assistance, food, medical supplies and generators and water. And by the time I got back from vacation, those three days had happened. The Nexus community was rallying. How can we raise money? What if we don't have connections? What else can we give? How can we get there? And it was just unbelievable how our community wrapped their arms around an island that was forgotten by its government. Whether or not, you know, they would have gotten to it eventually, who knows, but they didn't need to because a generation who couldn't put their finger on Grand Bahama Island on a map. Turned their hearts on and racked their brains on everything they could do to help and everyone could do something and the island was saved. And by the time a bunch of us got down there a few months later for Thanksgiving to volunteer with these nonprofits who were on the ground making such a difference, we recognized when we went to the first water station and food bank that the Nexus logo was on people's t-shirts and on on the signage. And we thought we didn't do this officially. We, We don't even send anyone our logo. And I asked the aid workers who were wearing our T-shirts, um, "What is Nexus?" And they said, "Oh, they got all the people here, and and that's how the volunteers came, and that's how we have food, and that's how we have water." And I said, "Oh, that's that's really remarkable. Thanks for sharing." But I never said who I was because we weren't trying to do anything or get any credit. Um, it was a random coalition of members with big hearts and um, and big influence. Are you? I mean,
0: I'm. I'm in awe. I mean, not at you, just the story. I'm just like, um, it's such a testimony to the contrary of uh, the notion of wealthy people don't care. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's 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 uh, it, it that, that's an incredible story. I mean, it should be a movie, is what it should be. That, that's amazing, Jeff. Thanks for. For bringing that up, well, I want to—I want to double down. I'm so proud of that. I mean, I mean, i I mean, to me, I keep thinking character matters. Character matters. I mean, this is this is another living testimony that character matters. You know, in the way people interact in the world. And uh, man, thank you for sharing that, Rachel. That was that was gold. (laughs) Well, listen,
1: i I know we're up for time, so if you need to run, let's let you run. But if not, do you have time to tell us one of your other favorite stories from, from Nexus?
2: sure um yeah i have a little time um just this year i mean my heart was really warmed um during the ukraine crisis which became a war we had several members who rallied together set up several whatsapp channels one about supplies one about volunteers one about um education one about evacuation um so many different whatsapp channels you couldn't even keep track and they were crisscrossing the world. A lot of our European members took strong leads here, and a lot of our members from the Jewish community took strong leads here because there are a lot of Holocaust survivors um, and Jewish communities that were being left behind in Ukraine. And basically, we had one member um, whose family couldn't get out on the first few days of the conflict in late February, and she wrote in the Nexus group, "All my family is in a remote part of Ukraine." um one of the people was not able to travel that comfortably and and so they weren't able to get on the buses that were sent by the large ngos that left at this time and you had to be on that street corner and the bus left and the bus left and so our members said we'll, we'll get your family we'll find a you know a way to send a car and then a bus and then a motorcycle and then we'll climb up and we'll you know get them down and we'll tell them we're here for them and we'll help them evacuate and get to neighboring countries and so once that one evacuation happened of this one member's family, it proved the model that this could be done and our community started to become a repository for family members who were left behind, whether they were elderly, whether they were moms with newborn babies, whether they were handicapped, any person left behind that wished to leave their country and wished to get to the safety of a refugee camp, Nexus members funded buses and cars and motorcycles to go find those people. And we'd have their names on Google Docs. And um, we had members on the ground, putting the names on the lists and going and finding the families and saying, Nexus has found you, you're not forgotten. And (laughs) I'm getting emotional, but it was was really beautiful because there's incredible work being done by the large NGOs on the masses and in evacuation and safety. But our members went to find the people that no one else would find and do the thing that large NGOs can't do, which is cherry pick and live in the details. So we filled in the gaps for all the big, beautiful efforts that were happening. And it felt so powerful for our members to be able to see the name of someone on a Google Doc and know that that's a person who's gonna get to safety tonight because of me and because I was involved on this WhatsApp thread or I raised this much money or whatever it might be. And so it was, I mean, honestly, thousands of people And there was a time when when Google froze our Google Doc and and there was someone standing at a bus trying to get people on the list and the Google Doc froze. And and we didn't know what to do. And the volunteers called me and said, do you know anyone at Google? What do we do? Um, Our Google Doc's been hacked. (laughs) And I said, yep, I know the guy who's effectively the CEO of Google Sheets. He's a member of Nexus. And I called him and I said, Ryan, this is Rachel. Whatever you're doing, it's not as important as this call. I need you to be fully present right now. We have a person checking off names on a bus in Ukraine. I'm not telling you the city, because it would put you in danger, and the names of the people in that Google Doc might be in danger. But they're standing waiting to get in a bus that will take them to safety, and this is their one chance, and I need you to unlock this doc. And he said, I don't work in privacy and security and data integrity. I said, today you do. Please, please unlock this Google Doc and he messaged everyone at google and then within i think about 20 minutes we were able to get access to it for 5 minutes get the people onto the bus and then it you know self destructed basically because it had been hacked by by um by people who wanted those names so our members rallied together in the most beautiful way this year starting with helping each other and then helping anyone who could not be helped by large organizations and i think it's a model for how philanthropists can fill in the gaps where ngos can't serve every single possible need and
1: it really inspired me. That's another movie. Oh,
0: a, That's another movie. Yeah, right it, it's
2: another movie. I mean,
0: I was crying. Uh, I was excited. I was- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a moment of fear. and Couldn't get the docks open. I mean, geez, this is this is terrific. Uh, and, and the other thing too is like, I firmly believe that private sector uh, has the ability to have the agility where governments and large NGOs just don't have to be able to move and and make make a difference uh, on the ground in the world. And lots of people don't think to even try because they don't think they deserve or can be in those arenas when actually they can be. Uh, I learned that through Joe and the arenas that we got in. Most people say we didn't have any business being there, but we made a lot of difference because we had the agility and uh, the ability to move like your, your, your members did in Ukraine, and, and that's – that's amazing, that's, a, that's, that's an incredible story.
1: Well, Rachel, you've been so generous with your time. We're so happy to yeah. have you on. Consider yourself part of the Greystoke family. You're welcome back any um, What People who want to find out more, where can they find out online? What's the website? Where should they connect with you on social media? Things like this.
2: Oh, thank you, that's so generous. Our website is nexusglobal.org, and we're a community for next-gen philanthropists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs equally, so we hope People will apply for our future summits. We have summits most years in Asia, Australia, Europe, Latin America, the Middle East, the U.S., and um, and more. So we hope you'll find us there. Join us somewhere in the world. And, um, and if you like social media, our hashtags are usually The Nexus Summit, and mine is usually Rachel Gerald.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. This is so great. Thanks for hearing this.